I'm going to read this passage and then we'll pray, okay? It's from Acts chapter 1. It says, During those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The number of people who were together was about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, spoke in advance about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and was allotted a share in this ministry. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, it was necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they, they proposed two, two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take place in this apostolic service that Judas left to go to his own place. So then they flipped a coin, (laughs) or they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is God's word. Our Father, there is no way that I can possibly communicate to these men and women that you love so dearly. So many of them have walked paths of faith that that only you know about. They face inner difficulty and questions that only you hear. And before you, God, we stand laid bare. Our soul is right here before you. And we say, Jesus, we want you to revive our soul. We want the joy of the Lord to be our strength. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And so we pray this morning that we would taste of those pleasures. That we would know you, Father, and your love for us in a deeper way than when we walked in here. And in no way would you please allow me to be in the way of what you want to say to your beloved sons and daughters. We pray for the kids who are being ministered to right now and their teachers that you'd speak through them, Lord. We want you to increase our faith. We pray against the schemes of the evil one. And we pray that you would cause men and women to be able to reach others, bringing them to that Easter service. But this morning, Jesus, we ask that you speak to our soul. You're here with us right now. We look forward to what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. It is hard to believe that almost seven years ago, Pastor Britt and I stood here and announced, in most dramatic fashion, mind you, that the next church plant was going to be in Boston. We even played a song from the back. It was incredible. (laughs) It was okay. Um, But it's even harder to believe that six years later, we're still in Boston. And as Charles Dickens says, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And we've experienced some of the most incredible moments being there. I mean, uh, longtime local ministers have told me, you have no idea what you're experiencing here. This is not normal. They've used words like miracle and like supernatural work of God. But also, we've experienced some really deep times of darkness, times of depression, times of discouragement that at times have made me wonder, was this God's plan? Did I make a huge mistake? Did I ruin my family's life? Did I properly discern God's direction? Was it ego that led me to the East Coast? Do I just like a good challenge? Was it me? Am I responsible for this level of pain? And knowing God's will can be really confusing. I think it's particularly confusing as Western Americans who prize comfort and ease 
We think if I'm in God's will, then that means I'm in this really great, easy path. I mean, even Drake, the mega hip-hop artist, has a song all about God's plan. The song's all about how everyone is out to get him, but God will always prosper him. That's God's plan. And I mean, I get it. I heard it on the radio yesterday driving back from Santa Barbara on the 101, and it was hard not to look around and be like, how is this not God's plan for my life? We think God's plan and God's will should always feel really great. The way we view God's plan doesn't always allow for pain or any process of character development. If you're over 40, then you know this to be true. I turned 40 in Boston. I'm officially in my 40s now. And I'm, yeah. And I'm realizing more and more that character is forged through conflict. And I'm sure that there's several of you sitting there in your chair right now. And you're asking, what is God's will to me right now? God, where should I live? Where should I work? Whom should I marry? Whom should I, where should I serve? What are my gifts and talents and abilities? What? We all start to feel the need to thread the needle, like to really get it right. Because after all, if I get it wrong, what if I choose poorly? Does God have a specific plan for me to follow? What happens if I don't choose rightly? What is God's will? The text in front of us, it gives us some clues to the question that we just asked. What is God's will? What is God's direction? How do I discern it? But as is usually the case, the question is provoked by crises. The early church is facing a crisis. Life hasn't turned out like they thought it would. They thought Jesus was the kind of king that would restore sovereignty to the nation of Israel. The kind of king that would set everything in order as they had imagined it. He would do some political restructuring. If Jesus is king, then he'll for sure restore our country as a sovereign nation. And then he dies a most humiliating death. The most humiliating death possible at the time. But wait. Just when we thought all hope was gone, Jesus pulls out a last-minute Tom Brady win. That's a boss, in Boston, that would get a great rouser right there. <laughs> and he rises from the grave the third day, and then they're like, this is the time. Surely you're going to restore Israel, Jesus. And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. You wait in Jerusalem until when the Holy Spirit is about to be poured out on you. That's chapter 2. That's next week. But to top it all off, Judas, who was one of them, part of the leadership, he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed all of them. And then he goes out and he kills himself. He hangs himself. And you know the pain of relational division. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you have experienced relational hardship. And then that relational hardship to be compounded with that very person going out and wrecking their lives. It's always hard when someone you love leaves and compound that with a disturbing death. This is a crisis that provokes a question, what's your will, God? What do you want? And now they're thinking to take the place as the fulfillment of God's people. Israel had 12 tribes. We need a 12th apostle. That's the correlation there. We have to replace Judas. At least that's how Peter understands the Psalms when he quotes them in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 and verses 21, verses 20. They seem to predict that a person from the future Messiah's posse would betray him. 
But after he betrays him, another should take that fallen apostle's position. The crisis provokes a question. Then they prayed, verse 24 says, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take the place in this apostolic service that Judas left to go to his own place. Can you show us what is your will? What is your plan? Can we discern your direction for the next apostolic successor? They're asking, what do you want, God? How do we discern your direction? And it's then that they do something that to us might seem a little odd. They pray, and then they cast lots. Now, of course, there's a whole discernment process that happens before the casting of lots. Uh, First, the community comes together, and they cast their vote on who should be considered for this office. It must be someone who um, has the character demonstrated as a follower of Jesus, um, who followed Jesus throughout his three years of his ministry, and who witnessed Jesus' resurrection. So they choose these two men, who according to history, they're a part of the 70 disciples that followed Jesus, and after their votes are cast for these two candidates, the disciples pray for God's direction, and then they cast lots. Now you have to know this about the casting lots process here. The practice of casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament. It's the way by which they would discern how God was leading them to a particular direction. But it's only mentioned seven times in the New Testament, and this is the final time. It's interesting that in the next chapter, that's when the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon the church. The casting of lots is not really known exactly what they were. It could be uh, like pulling sticks or something similar to drawing straws or flat stones like coins or some kind of dice. Their exact nature isn't known, but the closest modern practice we have is to flipping a coin. Anyone ever flipped a coin to know what God wants them to do? You're totally lying right now. So, is that the way we discern God's direction? We pray, we join in community, we ask questions, and if it doesn't work, we pull out George Washington and see what he's got to say. Is George? I don't know if George is on the quarter or not. So, what we find is that This is a transition, really. This is a graduation from the old covenant to the new. The number of 12 is necessary to show that the church is now the continuation of God's covenant people. And this is the last time that casting of lost is mentioned. Why? Because from here on out, God will lead his people through his indwelling spirit, not by casting lots. So then if casting lots or flipping coins aren't the way that we discern God's will, then how do we discern God's direction? From the text, we learn a few theological principles. First, they they have theological inquiry. They, They examine scripture. Peter stands up and he says, hey, I've been reading the Psalms, guys, and the Psalms say this is what we're supposed to do. He has a particular hermeneutic, a particular interpretation of how it's going. They also pray, right? They pray, God, which of these two do you want us to choose? And then they join in community. The community has an opportunity to be able to say, here's who we see as the next uh, kind of person who demonstrates the character of Christ. These are all ways theologically that we discern God's direction. 
Pastor Britt talked about the importance of prayer and Bible meditation last week. And we actually ended up in Boston through these means. God led us to CARP through these means, particular scripture references and gathering people around us and saying, what do you think about this? Does this align? Does this jive with how God has made us or the direction that God is leading us? What do you think? Here's what... Here's the verses we're getting out of this, and let's pray together and see what God might be saying. Combinations of each of these theologically are how we arrive at God's will. But what about those times that we do those things and we're still unsure? Like we did all the theological inquiries, we practiced the disciplines, we gathered together with godly companions on the journey, and we're still unsure about the direction that we're supposed to take. Additionally, does God have a will for our lives? God has a will, but does it, does it extend particularly to my life with where I am in 2018? We'll address that question later. But first, does God have a will for our lives? Theologians distinguish between the hidden and the revealed will of God. Throughout Scripture, we learn that God has a revealed will for your life. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. God wants, here's God's revealed will. I just want you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Thessalonians 4, God wants us to live lives of holiness and purity. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The word is porneia, that each of you should know how to possess his own body or her own body in sanctification and honor. I desire that for you, son. I desire that for you, daughter. That's my revealed will. This is the way to flourishing. God wants us to live lives of gratitude and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. When I come to Carpinteria and I come here and I see such tremendous beauty and, and, and just like sunshine, <laughs> um, I think, how do I possess it though? How do I package it, bottle it up and always experience it? But God wants me just to experience it today, to be thankful that I can spend some time in the sunshine at the beach with my family today. And then lastly, amongst others in Ephesians, we're told that God wants us to live under the sole influence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, the revealed will, and don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is also reflecting the will of God, the revealed will of God. And we often want God to show us the future. I don't know about you, but it's, I, I can be so transfixed on the future that I can just forget and lose sight of just being faithful in the present. Being present to the ones I love. Being a good friend to the people who are around me. Being honest and open and vulnerable. I can be so consumed with what I don't know that a lot of times I need to be reminded to begin with what I do know, the revealed will of God. One time I was sitting with the spiritual director in Boston. I told him all the things that I was concerned about, things that I was struggling with, things about questions I had about the future. And he just looked at me and he said, 
Al, have you ever realized that in your imagined future, God is rarely there? You're so consumed with your plans for the future that I think that you're forgetting about God's process and his plans for you in the present. You're so concerned about God's hidden will that you're missing God's revealed will, that you're to go home and love your wife as yourself and seek to love her as she feels loved, not how you feel loved. And to be a good neighbor, to share and to serve and to... And to pray for those who are around you, etc., etc. What's God's revealed will? When you read scripture, you begin to realize God has a revealed will for our lives. Now, the question, though, is does God have a particular will? Or what theologians call a hidden will for your life? The answer is yes. I think so. You think about the Apostle James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. He should know. He says in his letter, now listen, you who say today, tomorrow, we'll go to this city or we'll go to that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You could be dead today. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, well, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. There's a lot of times when I can get so caught. I love entrepreneurial studies and reading and leadership and all those sorts of things. And I can be easily caught up with my life plan and my three-year goals, etc. But he said, you ought to say, well, we're going to do this or that. You should plan. If that's what God wills, God has a plan and a will for the future. But does that include my future? We don't always know. Paul says something similar in Ephesus. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purposes of his will. In Acts chapter 17, Paul actually talks about how God has predestined where people should live and where they should call their home. And then in Acts chapter 18, as Paul leaves on his way to the church in Ephesus to plant this church, he says, hey, I'm going to come back to you guys if it's God's will for me. And then he sets sail for Ephesus. God does have a will. God has a will for the future. God is willing that all things are being restored according to the way that he made them to flourish how he's designed it. And your future is a part of God's redemptive plans. It's a part. To you, it's the part. You're the main character on the movie called My Life. And everybody else is just a supporting cast member. But that's really not how we read scripture. Now, God does have a will for us. But what if the reason the Bible is so silent about God's will for tomorrow and so clear on God's will for today is because the way we do God's will today has a way of shaping our tomorrow. The way we do God's revealed will today, where you are with what you're doing, with with who you're becoming, that is what's shaping your tomorrow. So here's the point. If you go away with nothing else, I want you to go away with this. We can learn to discern God's plan. But we must always depend on God's promises in our current process. 
We can learn to depend, to discern God's plan. But we must always, always depend on God's promises in the current process that I'm in. I want to break that down into three sections. Notice they're, they're bold in there. So the first thing I want to say is we can learn to discern God's plan. How do we do that? Well, we typically think of God's will like this. I got this from a friend of mine. He got this from a friend of his. So at this point, I don't really need to give him credit. So um, this is the way we typically look at God's plan. You have all kinds of decisions. And the bullseye in the middle is where you got to hit, man. You got one shot. Don't blow it. That's God's will. That little tiny dot right there, that's where blessing lives. But if you miss it, if you don't get it, you tweak it just a little bit, you end up in the brown zone. Eh, Disappointed. God's disappointed with you. No longer plan A. You get plan B now, son. And then if you really fail, God's mad at you. Um... Yeah, I think that's a lot of the ways that we tend to view God's plan for us. And what does that do? It creates all sorts of tension, all sorts of like a lack of confidence in how we're to move forward. It can make us easily skittish. Did I make a decision several years ago that ruined my life? Did I make a decision? Did I actually meet the one and then I passed it up and all... God's disappointed. Or did I pass up the wrong career path for myself? Did I study the wrong major in college? I should have I went into art, but instead I went into business. And now God's mad. Did I completely blow it? I must have missed it because I'm really not happy where I'm at. If I was really at the center, I would be so, so excited. But something's wrong. Now, we'll move to the second slide. Here's what it looks like. Oh my goodness, I wake up today and I make a decision. I make one decision and it just branches off into all sorts of hairy concepts. Hairy, oh my gosh, if I don't choose rightly, who knows where this thing could go in the future? Which way do I choose? The goal is up to, uh, our responsibility then is to discover the exact path of God's will. And if we find it, we make the best life for ourselves. God knows the right way. We just have to discover it. So our decisions become crippling. And then it looks like this. Once we make those decisions, we're on the other side of that. That's our, we're, in now, we're in our future or our imagined future. You are here. But if you'd have chose rightly, next slide, you should be here. <laughs> looks like you didn't know it. You didn't discern it. You didn't plan for it very well. This is... I can imagine how Peter might be feeling after his decision here. Because there's many armchair quarterbacks who feel that Peter's choosing of Matthias was a mistake. It was premature. If he would have just waited until after the Spirit fell, God would have led Paul to become the rightful 12th apostle. And they would have eventually found Paul. He would become the 12th. You know what? Peter's just impetuous. And you know what? That concept, that'll preach. But I don't think that that's Luke's point. 
One author says, There's no exegetical support in any New Testament text for the idea that the choice of Matthias to replace Judas was a mistake and that Paul was God's man for the filling of the gap. Matthias is not being mentioned again in Acts. is also shared by eight other apostles. So here's then, when we begin to view God's will as the bullseye, and if I rightly hit the bullseye, then I'm in this place of blessing at the end, as you'll see in the next slide. That's just the wrong picture, the wrong way to view God's will. That's not how we see it in Scripture. And the reason is because we're actually focused on the wrong thing. Jerry Sitzer is an author and a pastor who actually lost his wife um, in a horrible accident. And as he was finishing grad school or about to enter into grad school, he was unsure whether God would call him into medicine or into the ministry. Both would be great. Both would be a way to partner with God in God's mission of restoring all things in this world. But which one is right for me? And as he's unsure, he begins to talk about this decision. He says this. I want you to hear this first part. We think long and hard when we choose a college, a job, a career, or a spouse. This makes good sense, considering how consequential these choices are. But we give little thought to how much TV we watch, or how much we talk on the phone. Nobody talks on the phone anymore. But how, how much we talk on the phone, or maybe spend on social media, or how seldom we praise our children. And yet, the little choices we make every day often have a cumulative effect far exceeding the significance of the big choices that we occasionally have to make. And then he says, we do not need to fret when we have to make big decisions about the future, worrying about the terrifying possibility that we might miss God's will for our lives. We simply need to do what we already know in the present. God has been clear where clarity is needed. The choices we make every day to love a spouse after an argument, to treat an unkind coworker with respect, to serve food at a soup kitchen, these determine whether or not we are doing the will of God. If we have a problem, it's not a lack of knowledge. Rather, it's our unwillingness to respond to the knowledge that we do have. Now, we'll talk about in a moment, just about how we go about making the normal everyday decisions in a godly way. But what is Sitzer saying? He's saying that so much of life is filled with decisions that we're, quite frankly, unsure about. Should I marry this person? Should I go to this school, this city, take this career path, buy this house? What we tend to do is to focus on the unknown rather than on what we do know. Maybe this little illustration will help. My little girls, I have three daughters. And let's say hypothetically that they were super, super excited about what to get me for Father's Day. Could happen. They want to make it the most special day out of the year. So it's February, right? And they come into my office and they're like, Dad, we we really want to know what you want. We want to know what to get you. We want to make it the most incredible day of your life. And I'm only 12, but I want to know where do you want me to go to school, Dad? I could go to here. I could go there. There's over 50 colleges in a two-mile radius in Boston. Which one do I choose? And I ask her, Babe, did you make your bed this morning? Did you do what Mommy asked you to do? Why are you arguing with your sisters? 
It makes me sad when you fight with them. Did you forgive your little sister when she asked you for forgiveness and you said, I'll think about it? Are you doing just what's in front of you? That would make me so happy today. You're so consumed about what's going to happen in June that you're missing just what your mom is telling you for the moment. What do we do when we're trying to make a decision that we have no idea what's the best thing to do? We've sought scripture, we've prayed, we've counseled, we've trusted, we've we've walked with other trusted companions on the road. I think this phrase might be helpful. One preacher says, in light of our past experience, or in light of my past experience, my present circumstance, and my future hopes and dreams, what I hope God leads me into What's the wise and loving thing to do? Is this going to help me produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Is this going to draw life out of others around me? Will this decision best help me to serve those around me based on my skills, my aptitudes, and, and who I'm made, how I'm made? And is it wise? Where will it lead? How will it go? And so I begin, as a father, my primary task is to raise responsible adults, right? Who are maturing and who are giving back to the common good of society. So I say to my, my daughters, baby, I'd love it if you could, I'm, I'm so blessed that you want to bless me on Father's Day. And it would bless me even more just for you to do what's in front of you today. And as far as college goes, I'm with you. I will always be with you. I'll be with you to help you process it because I'm committed to your flourishing. But also, I love you so much that I want you to make a choice. It could be between this school or that school. Either one, I know that your desire is to honor me and you're becoming a person of character. So guess what? Whichever one sounds more amazing in light of your past experience, your present circumstances, and your future hopes and dreams, let's make a decision based on that. We know the framework of God's will for our lives in this world. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor. And all the decisions we make about our lives ought to be framed within these two great commandments. Our lives are not our own to do with as we please. We're called to love God by loving our neighbor. This is the framework in which we live our lives. So then we begin by asking this question. This is what the decisions of our life begin to look like based on that framework. Again, this is from a friend of mine. (laughs) So if you're offended, you can email him. (laughs) Would you be Christ-like? Who is God making me today? And then, in between these two categories, is it stupid? Well, no. Is it sinful? Well, no. Then in between that section, that's where I make a decision. And next slide. That's where the blessable places are. We can learn to discern God's plan, but sometimes God's plan is hidden. We want all sorts of uh, fleeces and signs. I mean, I know about this. I stood up here in front of you seven years ago, and I'm like, hey, God called me to move to Boston. Cue song. 
I mean, it, it, was, it worked in the moment. Like, it, that was God. <laughs> um, I think. But, you know what? Oftentimes, God, remain, his will remains hidden. Doesn't always speak in terms of fleeces and signs. Recently, um, well, uh, almost a year ago, uh, Thursday before Easter, I got a phone call. Thursday before Easter, I get a phone call at 4.30 p.m. Hi, Pastor Al, just want to inform you that the building that you normally meet in and that you're going to meet in this Sunday that you're expecting several hundred people to come to, yeah, you can't meet there this weekend because the city of Boston has declared it inhabitable. We have to remove the steeple. It's about to collapse. Good luck. (laughs) Happy Easter. And so after a few choice words, I I hung up the phone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) You know, it's Boston. It's Boston. It's part of a vocabulary, and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term of endearment. And um, we get off the phone, and we're like, what do we do now? We end up having to meet outdoors for eight straight weeks outside in a very wet spring. Only one of those weeks out of eight did we have to actually cancel. And we ended up moving to a new building across the water in Cambridge. That's where Harvard is, and that's where, like, Everything amazing is, actually. And so we moved across the water. We found this building, and, and it felt like an 80s Baptist building, which worked for us. We had air conditioning. We were happy. The, uh, it was a, an Italian building, so the house manager was a, a short Italian man named Luigi. I mean, Mario. I'm sorry. I, 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 I swear, that was not... I, I don't even know how... Not every Italian... Um, Gene, you, I love you. Where are you, Gene? You're my man. You would love Mario, by the way. And so Mario is not a Christian. Mario becomes a Christian and becomes a member of our church. And so yeah, it's amazing. And so before long, it's time for us to go back to our building across the water in the south end of Boston. And they've never treated us as well as Mario and the Dante Alighieri Center, it's super Italian, has treated us. And so we're, we're asking ourselves now, do we go back to our former building or do we stay here? I don't know. You know what we'll do? We'll put out a fleece. We'll flip a coin. We didn't flip a coin. The fleece is, we're going to ask our new building, if you can go down in price, then maybe we'll consider staying. That's our answer. Well, our old building, they came to us and said, you know, we really want you back. The neighbors, when you had your outside church, the neighbors in the low-income street that you meet on, they've been asking, what happened to the church? We want them back. We're like, oh my gosh, maybe that's our fleece. And then we get a phone call from from Mario and the Dante saying, we want to reduce your rent by $1,800 per week. We'll match whatever they're going to offer you. Stay. And we're like, well, that fleece sucked. (laughs) And then one of our elders says, here's a new fleece. If I wake up with $500 next to my my nightstand (laughs) in the morning, we're supposed to stay or leave. Well, there was no fleece and there was no sign. Only the question in light of our past experience, our present circumstance, and our future hopes and dreams, what is the wise and loving thing to do? 
we ended up making the decision, although some felt we should stay and some felt we should go, we decided to go back to where we originated from because we felt we could leave a legacy by pouring financial resources and human capital into a, a, a street that's by and large more dangerous, less inhabitable, but there's more opportunity for us to make a long-term difference there. And Mario told our church, I'm going to go with you across the water. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's going to work out yet. We go back in March 4th. I'll tell you uh, next time I'm invited back. Hopefully, I am invited back. So we said, we, must, we can learn to discern God's plan but we must always depend on God's promises in our, current, in our current process. I have to believe that Peter and the rest of the apostles are depending on the promise of Jesus. Jesus, you said that you would build your church. You said that you would never leave us or forsake us. Your word says in the psalm, Psalm 69 and Psalm, uh, another psalm, that we should have someone replace Judas when he betrayed you. Jesus, we need you to lead us. We're depending on your promises for today. All through Matthew 6 is this promise from Jesus who says, I don't want you to worry about your life. Your Father who's in heaven knows your need before you ask him. You see the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. God cares for them, but how much more does God care for you? Does God know your need? Will God meet your need? And then he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry, son. Don't worry, daughter, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And in this line, we find God's will for you today. Seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness over your future. At least two times, these disciples say, show us which of these two that you have chosen for this ministry, for this mission to further your kingdom more than our own. That's when we're putting ourselves in the blessable places. We're saying, God, we're making a decision. We're not being stupid about it, and we're seeking wisdom through your word and through community, and we're not being sinful about it. We're actually seeking you. We don't know which of the two, but we do think that this is the wise choice. Would you show us who you're choosing for this particular ministry? Now, I want to be careful with that phrase, blessable places, because What might come to mind when you think of blessable places is comfort, ease, and becoming the envy of all of your friends on social media. Great Instagram pics. That's the blessable place. But the chances are you may be hating life right now. Chances are you might have actually done God's will and you're thinking, then why am I so sad? Why am I hurting Why do I feel pain? Have I missed God's will? It's possible. It is possible. It's possible that fear has driven you more than faith. And because of fear driving you, it's possible, because I know, because I've done this, that I've either been driven into something that's stupid or something that's sinful. 
Something that's filled with envy or ego rather than faith and trusting God's direction and will. It's possible that your addictions have blocked your apprenticeship to Jesus. That the fruit of the Spirit is lacking because of folly in my choices. It's crazy how much our decisions and our choices have lasting impact on our lives. And the older you are in this room, the more you can attest to how much decisions and choices have impacted your life. And you may be thinking, I've missed God's will because of sin or because of something stupid. And that might be true. So then, is there any hope for me? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because in the very next chapter, Peter's going to say, repent and turn back to Jesus so that times of refreshing can come. And the reality of it is that the moment we turn to Jesus and turn our back from sin or on what's stupid and we say, Jesus, I've run to this stupid thing. I've run into sin because I didn't trust you and I was afraid. Will you please forgive me? Boom, you're back on. And you know what that means? It means we're living under the canopy of God's forgiving love. And this is very important. I do believe that God tends to not reveal his specific will all the time. Why? Because we're called to walk by faith. And he's raising mature, responsible sons and daughters. We can pray and pray for God's specific will to be revealed to us. And sometimes it is. And sometimes God speaks in supernatural ways. And sometimes God doesn't. I don't know why. Because sometimes <laughs> wisdom need be applied here. And the results may vary. Notice that I said, though, we must always depend on God's promises in our current process. And here's where I'd like to draw it to a close. Because here's the thing. Many of you have been seeking God's kingdom and you don't feel like you're in blessable places. And you're like, you know, I've tried my hardest. I I don't think that I have sinned against God and I don't think I did anything stupid. I think I walked by faith into this thing and here I am. And it's really hard. And I don't know why it's so hard. Does that mean I'm not in blessable places? No, that's not what that means. It means that you're in the paradox of suffering. You see, suffering is a paradox, and it's a vital part of our discipleship process. The process, because it doesn't follow any forms of rationality or clear patterns. It's, it's a paradox. There's a paradox because we don't know God's will, and sometimes we learn God's will through suffering. I recently taught through the life of Joseph. I would encourage you, if you're in this place right now, of you're saying, you know, I feel like I've done God's will. I've not entered into one of these two categories, but that I've gone into the blessable places, and I'm in prison. I feel like I'm in chains. I feel like I'm stuck. Read the life of Joseph. Here's a man that not one time is it mentioned that he overtly sinned. Yeah, he was kind of pompous and arrogant and cocky when he was a kid, and he paid the price for it from his brothers but not the kind of price that anyone should pay. His brothers sell him into slavery. And then he's sold into slavery into the house of a high-ranking Egyptian official. And in that house, he encounters a woman who fabricates a lie and says that she tried to rape him, her. And then he runs out of the house. And then he's 
shackled again and put into prison for two more years. And then he helps a couple of guys in the prison who have some juice within the, within the building that can help get them out. They're shackled up too. But as they're released, they forget about Joseph. Over and over, he seems to be forgotten by his family, forgotten by his friends, forgotten by his co-workers. Where's God? But you know, it says over and over again that the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. Didn't seem like it. But finally, when Joseph's brothers are reconciled back to him years later, and Joseph has an opportunity to love his enemies and do good to him, do you know what he says? Of course you do. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This wasn't God's, maybe God's best for me. And you probably have experienced pain and suffering to a degree that that maybe wasn't even God's plan for you. But God can take that and he can work it for his good because he's committed to you. He's committed to your good. You know, there's one other time in the New Testament that it says they cast lots. They cast lots for Jesus' clothing. This paradox of the worst thing ever, but the best day ever. This paradox about the most painful situation of, God, where are you? And yet, not another time in history do we experience the love of the Father than we do on the cross of Jesus. They cast lots for his clothing. It's the paradox of suffering. And in this paradox, surprisingly, we learn more about God's love for us. God's redemptive plan. The cross is both the worst and the best day in history. The lowest point in human history, but the greatest point in history. It's a mystery that I don't understand and the one that you might be experiencing right now, but what you can be assured of is that God is not a God who is unfamiliar with the paradox that you are suffering through. So you might find yourself in blessable places and God saying, son, daughter, I just want you to use your wisdom and you're like, I did! But we can learn to discern God's plans, but we must always depend on God's promises for our present process. And friends, you're in a process of becoming more like Jesus and God's doing that in you and God's committed to you. You know why? Because if I, being a father, would be committed to my daughter's well-being and the maturing process, as evil as I am, how much more is your father who's in heaven committed to you and to who you're becoming? He will never leave you, even in the choices that you're making. So I want to close with a prayer. I'd like to pray this over you, and I pray this with my, with my leaders periodically. It's an old prayer by a man who basically is like, I'm not really sure about this path, but I think you're in it. Thomas Merton says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. And nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road. Though I may know nothing about it, therefore... 
will I trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you'll never leave me to face my perils alone. Let's take a moment to be silent before we come to the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, you are with us in this. Thank you for these words, and we ask now that you'd speak to us, Holy Spirit, and tell us of how you're inviting us to follow you and trust you as we come to this, the supper you've prepared for us. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.